our guest today. You know, as we continue the, uh, uh, the, this new series called New Thing, A Heartland Manifesto, it's all about the critical significance of relationships. And uh, our guest today is Jarrett Meek, the director of uh, Mission Adelante, and the founder, I might add. But um, I, Jarrett and I together go as far back as uh, 94, when we moved back to Kansas City and started at Heartland. Jarrett was one of the first people that I met. And what brought us together is this, this passion for marriages and for families and, and young families to help them connect and help them grow. And together we created this family uh, experience called the Ozark Family Adventure, and we hosted groups multiple weeks in the summer. Uh, Jarrett and his wife Kristen were, uh, uh, helped us create that. And after that, he developed uh, this home builders ministry that has been one of the major contributions. You guys made such a major contribution to the life of Heartland in terms of marriages and young families. And, um, and then Jarrett had this call to mission. And he had uh, a passion for Latin, Latin America, Grab, gathered some folks around him as a core group, Heartland sent them, and they were uh, in Costa Rica in language school before they ultimately landed in Bolivia, where they spent years creating space to build relationships with an entirely different culture, where they made Jesus first. When he came back, he founded Mission Adelante, which is a Kansas City, Kansas-based organization serving our immigrant community. And so, uh, Jarrett and I um, uh, just go back a long way. So, I, he's going to come up in a second, and I would love for you guys uh, to give him a warm, warm Heartland welcome and round of applause. So, thanks again for being here uh, this morning. Well, good morning, Heartland, here gathered together, and those of you who are online as well. It's such a joy and an honor for me to be back at Heartland. It just feels like I'm, I'm coming back home in a lot of ways, and um, just the sense of uh, common purpose and the sense of long-term relationship, all those things come alive when I get to come to Heartland. So I'm excited to be able to share with you about this topic of, uh, of relationships and I want to talk a little bit more about my relationship with Tom, because I remember the first time that he came back to Kansas City. It was in 1994, and, and he preached his first sermon at Heartland. And I was 24 years old at the time, and a young married, uh, young and married to my wife, Kristen. And Tom gets up there and preaches, and I said, I've got to get to know that guy. And so the next week, I'm looking for Tom here, or at Heartland at 8301 Lamar in the old facility, and they point me down to the children's ministry supply closet. That's where they had stuck Tom for his office. And so I connect with Tom there and, and start to get to know him, and he puts me to work right away, stuffing envelopes and sealing them and putting stamps on things. And that was the beginning of a neat relationship that he and I have had um, and the beginning of my um, 
ministry career, really, um, that started at Heartland. And one of the first things we did, Tom mentioned the Ozark Family Adventure, and there's stories there, but we just um, dug in to this ministry. It was a, it was a week-long family camp experience for folks from Heartland. And year one, we did one week. Year two, we did two weeks. Year three, you know, and so on, up till we were in year four. And you guys need to understand the... Uh, what this entailed. I mean, there were just a few of families who were putting this thing on. And so we would buy food at Sam's Club. We would do the kids ministry. We would drive boats and wave runners and we would do skits. There was just a ton that went into this. So year four, we were doing four weeks of this thing and I didn't know if it it was possible. So we finished week three. We were just exhausted. And we came back to, uh, to Heartland between weeks on the weekend. And so Tom and I, it was Sunday, getting ready for week four on Monday and we see each other in the hallway. We're passing each other and we looked at each other and then we just looked away. (laughs) It's like, I don't want to see you. You represent exhaustion and hard work. But we had this, we have this beautiful friendship and Tom really became a mentor to me. And one of the places that the relationally driven environment at Heartland has been manifested in my life and in so many other ways. So many of the people that I've known for, um, uh, from back in those days are still close friends. In fact, our very first small group that we were in here at Heartland with young married couples, us and two of the other couples still get together every December and just do kind of a recap of the year together. Um, and so many beautiful things. So Heartland, like Tom said, has always been a relationally driven church. And I want to talk a little bit about that today and just dive into three reasons the church must value relationships. Three reasons the church must value relationships. Before I do that, I'd like to just say a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time to be back at Heartland. It just feels like a reconnection of relationships again and the opportunity to share uh, what you've done in our midst, in Heartland's midst, and in my life over the years. And I just pray that something today from your word would touch the heart of each person here, whatever that may be. I know that you work through your word, and I just pray that you would do that today. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to start with a story about Jesus. You know, he had been teaching, his ministry was developing, he had been healing people, and he had been ruffling feathers of some of the religious people. And he comes to this, um, we come to this moment in Matthew chapter 12, and Jesus was, uh, went to one of the synagogues where he often would go to preach or to teach, um, and so he's there, and we're going to pick up the story, Matthew 12, verses 9 through 13, uh, right there. It says, and we'll read it together, it says, he went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? so that they might accuse him. He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. So there's several things in this passage that are interesting. The first one 
um, it was confusing. It's a very strange thing to say, but they bring this guy who has a withered hand, and I'm not sure exactly what that was, but we can imagine that his hand was injured in some way. And they bring this man uh, to Jesus, and they ask the strangest question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? It seems so ironic that they would ask a question like that. It's almost like asking Superman if it's legal to fly. Why would that question even come up? They're in one sense acknowledging Jesus' power to heal and in the other sense nitpicking when it might be legal. But we need to understand what they were talking about. So they mentioned the Sabbath. So the Sabbath, of course, is no small thing. I mean, it's one of the Ten Commandments. Observing the Sabbath day and keeping it holy was something that was very important in the Old Testament. It was a pattern that God established even in creation. For six days he created it, and on the seventh day he rested. And so he gave that to us as a gift. But the problem is, and this happens with religious people all the time, religious people had taken this gift, this command, and they had made something out of it that it was never meant to be. And what they ended up doing with this Sabbath law, in order to keep the Sabbath, they had built around it all of these other laws and rules really to keep you as far away from breaking the Sabbath as you possibly could be. So one example of some of the ridiculousness of this is uh, I just want to kind of build back from it. So if you were to make, if you were to build a house, you might need bricks. And if you were going to use bricks, you might need mortar to put between the bricks, right? So in order to make mortar, you would have to mix water and mud of some sort. So what they had done, one of the many ways that they had written rules around the Sabbath is that they said, well, you are not allowed to spit in the mud or in the dirt on the Sabbath day because that might make mud, which would be like mortar, which would be like working on the Sabbath day. A confusing set of rules that they had developed around this gift that God had given them of the Sabbath day, which leads me to this point, why? Why do we sometimes as religious people prioritize religion over people, over relationships? Jesus' response to this was perfect. He does what he often does in this situation. He tells kind of a story. He lays out an example and he says, which of you, if you had a sheep and it fell into a pit, wouldn't you just take it out even if it was the Sabbath day? And they're all going, well, yeah, of course I would. And he goes, of, of how much more value is a man than a sheep? Jesus is getting at the idea here that people are infinitely, or people are extremely valuable in God's eyes. He's bringing us all the way back to Genesis 1 when God created mankind and said, I'm creating mankind in my image. He's stamped us with his image and therefore we have, in God's eyes, a special value. And so Jesus is reminding the Pharisees of that and he's contra that, that statement contrasts so much with what they said where they're worried about, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath and Jesus says how much more valuable is a man than a sheep Jesus prioritizes relationships 
over religion. He makes people more important than rules. Sometimes as religious people, we really miss the point when we think about religious activities, religious rules as being more important than the relationships that we have with one another. Sometimes we do great things that are very important. You know, our study of scripture, memorizing scripture, reading the Bible, worshiping, singing songs, serving on teams or committees or different things like that all in the name of Jesus. But if we do all those things and we do not love our neighbor, we've missed the point. We've become religious people engaged in religious things while we don't prioritize the people and the relationships that are around us. Jesus was saying right here, you know what? Of course it's okay to do good on the Sabbath. I prioritize relationships over religion. You know, Heartland has always done this. Always prioritized relationships over religion from the beginning when I arrived at Heartland. Um, early on, I recognized that what Heartland was trying to do was strip away the religious trappings of church so that people could see Jesus. Sometimes religion gets in the way of people actually being able to see who Jesus is and know who he is and feel his love. And so Heartland from the beginning, early on, I remember um, this was 26, 27 years ago, it seemed like doing church with a worship band and some other things like that and seats instead of pews, um, it seemed like those were new things that we were just trying to figure out, but the whole idea behind it was, how can we pull religion off of Jesus so people can see him? How can relationships become the vehicle instead of religious rituals and practice? And so Heartland became a church among the unchurched where people had a clear sight of who Jesus was. So that's the first reason we must value relationships because Jesus prioritized relationships over religion. How can you be part of building this future for Heartland? This has been our history. It will be our future. And this is a moment right now. We're kind of in this strange 2020. I hope there's a parenthesis around this year. But what comes next is just as important as what came before. And what comes during Right now, we can be preparing our hearts during this time for this next step. Will we value relationships over religion? I want to take you back to um, a story from when I was in college. This is a little bit of personal stories here today, but um, I grew up going to church when I was young, uh, but I really wouldn't consider myself a follower of Jesus really until I got to college. And my early experience going to church um, had a lot to do with going to church. We would dress up. I would come home. I would get rid of those clothes as quick as I could and get into my shorts. And then I went to college and, you know, I had a knowledge of who Jesus was. But it wasn't until these experiences that I'm going to share that really my faith came alive. And I joined a fraternity in college and it was a really unpleasant experience for me. It was the first semester I was connected there and kind of really struggling relationally and not enjoying it, feeling a lot of different pressure and feeling like a fish out of water. And sometime in that first semester, somebody invited me to go to this campus group called ICTHUS. 
So I didn't know what to expect. I show up at Ichthus though and walk into the room and there's 80 to 100 students in this room in the union and they're talking, they're engaged, they're laughing, they're then they, then they start the, the worship time and they're praising God and I'm sitting here for the first time. I'm going, wow, these people believe this and they love each other. And they had relationship with one another and that was the first time in my life that this began to click and I started asking myself for the first time, could this be real? Is Jesus real? And I was seeing it in this situation. I was seeing the way this community was being lived out and it was compelling. I wanted to be a part of that. So I'm contrasting this fraternity experience which was so unpleasant and this community here. And I said, I wanna be part of that. And that for me was how I decided to follow Jesus really and give him my life. And I ended up leaving the fraternity and I ended up joining Ichthus and that became for me this thriving place of community. And it also became the place where I realized that the church is people and not a place that I go to on Sunday. And really that's the second reason that the church must value relationships because we need to remind ourselves that the church is people and not a place. I want to talk a little bit about the very first church because there's nowhere that this is demonstrated more clearly than in this first church that emerged after Jesus's ministry. So he, you know, after he had preached and taught and made disciples, he was crucified, he was resurrected. He spent time with his disciples after that. And right before he ascended to heaven and left, he tells his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come power would come on them. I'm sure they're confused by that, not really knowing what that means, but they do. They wait in Jerusalem. And so the next thing that happens when the Holy Spirit does come, they're filled with power and passion. And Peter, who had just denied Christ earlier, he gets up and starts preaching in the temple. Now this is dangerous because Jesus had recently been crucified. Now Peter's really kind of boldly preaching and people are responding to his message. They're receiving his message. They remember this Jesus guy who taught and preached and did miracles and was crucified and they heard maybe that he was resurrected. Peter's preaching and now they say, I wanna follow him too. And the Bible tells us that it was thousands of people who were saying yes. So where did they go to church? Did they build a new building? They didn't. Of course, the temple was a place that they, they met and gathered, but church was not tied to a place. I want to read through Acts 2, 42 to 47 for you and just pull out a couple things. It says they devoted themselves, this is a description of this group, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers, and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved." 
that passage to me describes this beautiful picture of what church should be like. It was happening in that time and there are so many things about that that, that are amazing. Just the way they cared for one another, the generosity, um, the way that God was working in their midst, the way they, they loved each other, their dedication to the, to the apostles' teaching. But there's this one word that I want to pull out of here that describes a lot of it. For those of you who maybe have, have been Christians for a little while, you know that the, most of the New Testament was written in Greek originally. And if you've studied a little bit of the New Testament Greek to try and understand, you might have come across this word that is translated fellowship here in this passage. In the Greek, it's koinonia. And we have some idea of what fellowship means, and we kind of have the idea that it's get, gathering together and eating and drinking together and having a good time, and that is true. However, this koinonia word has more than that involved with it. It's an engaged fellowship. It's a participatory fellowship. The idea is a fellowship of people, each who has their part, each who makes a contribution, each who puts in, and that's exactly what we're seeing here. We're seeing this participatory fellowship be born. That's what I experienced when I went to Ichthus for the first time and got involved there. So fast forward four years, I'm graduating from college at KU and I'm saying to myself, are there any churches in the real world like this? Or was this a unique college experience that I just had? Well, my wife had already been introduced to Heartland and she invited me to come to Heartland and I walked in the door and I experienced Heartland and I, and I was stopped in my tracks and I said, wow, this, this is like ichthus only for adults. And other people that I knew later on were saying, this is like young life only for adults. And I know that the founders of Heartland went out, set out to create that. This high value on church as people and not a place. And so for us at Heartland, one of the first ways that that was experienced was through small groups. And today they have, uh, Heartland, you all have what are called communities, and Tom mentioned them. But I would just encourage you, if you want to experience the depth of what church as people and not a place is all about, get connected to a community where that kind of relationship can be built, where there's engaged participation, where there's relationship, where there's connection. So we've talked about the fact that Jesus prioritizes relationship over religion. We've mentioned that church is people, not a place. And now I want to kind of move to the third reason here that we really must value relationships. I wanted to tell you another story about a person who made an impact on my life. This was also in college, and there was a man named Doug Nunkey. And Doug Nunke was on staff with the Navigators. The Navigators is a national Christian organization that really focuses on making disciples. And so Doug, along the way, he befriended me. And we end up spending a lot of time together. We would play basketball together. We would um, eat dinner at his house sometimes, play frisbee on the golf course that was behind his house. Sometimes we would... Um, you know, we would meet for coffee or for breakfast in the morning, but in the midst of life, the things that we were doing together, Doug wove in 
what it looks like to follow Jesus. He taught me how to study the Bible. He taught me how to pray in new ways. He helped me grow as a leader and as a Christian. Doug was shaping, forming my relationship with Christ through an individual, intentional, everyday life kind of relationship. And that had an impact and it continues to have an impact on me today in the way that I understand what it means to make disciples. And in fact, when Jesus was ending his ministry on earth, he gathers his disciples together and he gives them what we know as the Great Commission. He gives them, gives them their marching orders. I'm going, now you guys go make disciples. And for us, it's kind of a strange idea, the idea of making disciples. It's not something that we see in our culture and our world every day to day. So it might be a little confusing to us, how does that actually happen? We might come up with methods or strategies to do that that might not necessarily work so well, but Jesus' disciples, when they heard that, when Jesus said, now you guys go and make disciples, they knew exactly what he meant. Why is that? Well, it's because he had just spent three years of his life doing that with them. And the question that we need to ask as a church if we really want to understand the value of relationships and what it looks like to make disciples, we need to ask, how did Jesus do this? And so if we follow, if we read the Gospels through this lens of how did Jesus make disciples, we start to notice the things that he did with his disciples. It was kind of like Doug Nunke. Well, he went to a wedding with them. They went fishing together. They went on road trips together. They walked and they ate and they talked. And sometimes he did preach and sometimes he healed. Sometimes they did ministry together. Sometimes he delegated ministry to them. This whole disciple-making process for Jesus was all couched in the context. That was like sound effects there. God is involved in this message today. This whole disciple-making process for Jesus was couched in the vehicle of everyday, life-on-life, intentional relationships. And that's really the third reason that we must value relationships. Disciple-making is a relational endeavor. It's not a program. Disciple-making is a relational endeavor. It's not a program. I want to read Mark chapter 3, 13 to 15 to you just really quickly and cap this off. But um, Jesus, at one point, he had a lot of people following him, a lot of people who would have said they were his disciples, 70, 120, a large group. But at one point, he calls 12 of them to be his disciples. And he says, uh, Mark 3, 13 says, he went up to the mountain and he called to him those who he desired and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. I just want to focus in on two words there. With him. The very first reason that he called these 12 is so that they might be with him. That's an interesting concept and it's exactly how he lived this out. But the with him principle of disciple making means that we must invest personally and relationally in people if we want to help them grow in their faith. 
You see, disciple-making cannot be reduced to a program, to a curriculum, to a class. Why is that? Well, it's because the primary activity or the primary thing that's happening in disciple-making is not the transfer of information. And somewhere, sometimes that's where we miss it. We think if we go through the right book, if we do the right curriculum, curriculum disciples will be made on the other side of this. But those are good strategies if we're talking about transferring information. But Jesus was transferring his life to these 12 men. It was about the transfer of who he was. There was information that was part of that, but it was a whole lot more than just information. And so when we think about disciple-making, we must remember that the goal and the purpose of it is the transmission of the life of Christ from one person to another person. And that happens through relationships. Are you on that journey? Where are you on that journey? Some of you may have come here today and you're just investigating Jesus, trying to learn a little bit more about him. I would just encourage you to take the next steps in that. One of the most important things you can do is to pursue somebody who may be just a little bit further along in the journey than you. They can encourage you. They can walk with you. They can share information with you. They can help you begin to grow. Or maybe you're somebody who's on the journey already. Now let me tell you, if you're three steps down the road in this journey, you may not feel like you're very far along, but what if there's somebody that's only two steps along the way? You can walk with that person. You don't have to be an expert or a theologian or a pastor to make disciples. If you know how to build a friendship and you're following Jesus, you can walk with somebody else in the same process. Maybe you're further along and you're able to develop leaders and help people grow in a lot of different ways, but that is the question as we end today. How can we be involved in what Jesus is doing? How can we develop Jesus' first kinds of relationships? We've talked today about three reasons the church must value relationships. Jesus prioritizes relationships over religion, remember? The church is people, not a place. And finally, disciple-making is a relational endeavor, not a program. So Heartland has always been a relationally-driven church. This has always been part of the DNA of Heartland. We're in this 2020 parentheses where it seems like life has stopped, things are different. As Tom said eloquently at the beginning and with appropriate emotion, we need each other more than ever. We need connection more than ever. We need relationship more than ever. And as Heartland looks, and when I say Heartland, I don't mean the leadership of Heartland. I mean you all sitting in these blue seats, watching online, as Heartland looks forward, as you all look forward, as we look forward to what's next, we need to build on relationship. We need to build on the kind of relationship that cares for one another, on the kind of relationship that prioritizes people over religion, on the kind of relationship that invests individually in people to help them grow. So how can you get connected? What does it look like for you to invest? So the communities, 
That's the first big thing. Check out that link for the different community groups. Um, talk to somebody out there at the hub. Find different ways. Heartland has ways to get connected, and those are so important during this time. So as we close today, I just wanted to, again, thank you all for inviting me. Thank you for just giving me the opportunity to even reflect on my own past experience at Heartland. It's, it's just a joy and continues to be part of who I am today. So I would like to end with prayer and send you guys out into a beautiful rainy Sunday afternoon. Jesus, thank you for your example. Thank you for your heart that really is about loving people, that is about um, recognizing the value that your Father has put in every person. Um, and I pray that we, Heartland, as a church, would recognize that as well, that our hearts would burn for a, with a love for you and a love for our neighbor in ways that are extravagant and powerful, that that would come through in everything that we do as a church. I pray for Heartland in this in this difficult season, that you would continue to have your hand over this church, that you would continue to connect people and link people, that you would give a sense of hope and encouragement to this community as we think about what's next and as we prepare for the next steps. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Heartland, again, thank you so much.